So I've been gone for a few weeks. I'm glad to be back. Um, uh, before I left, I was talking a number of talks on the Eightfold Path, and I was going to continue that until I found out that it was the anniversary of uh, the first reading of the poem Howl in San Francisco some 50 or 60 years ago, something like that. And so, um, and I was invited to uh, um, an old student's dinner from people from SFI invited me to dinner Saturday night, and I went to this dinner, and it was lovely. Uh, a number of people who've been part of SFI for many years were there. Um, I think Kitty's the only one who's here tonight. Um, as so, some people, are, you know, don't come to SFI anymore, but consider themselves moldy oldies anyway. So, so they had a, a party. It was a lovely dinner party, but unfortunately, I missed the reading of Howell, which happened in North Beach. And how many people know the poem Howell? How many people know? How many people don't know the poem Howell? I just, okay, great. So, um, so I thought I would talk about this, partly because I had been on a bike ride that morning with one of the people who was at the party, Bill Weber, who's been part of SFI for many years, was on the board of SFI. And we were um, riding, we took a nice bike ride, we were chatting about Dharma and practice, and he was telling me about the first time he heard me talk. And it was a talk that I gave that included talking about the poem Howl and Allen Ginsberg. And, um, and so then it made, got me to thinking about it, and then I realized, oh, it's the anniversary of Howl. And, and I thought, oh, I could talk about Howell tonight, and I'll continue when I come back to continue talking about the Eightfold Path, because there were a number of pieces I haven't spoken about yet. But um, the poem was first read in San Francisco some 60 years ago or so. And, um, and um, uh, Ferlinghetti, who owns, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who owns City Like, Lights Bookstore was at the reading of the poem Howell, and he heard the poem and he thought the Powell uh, knocked the sides out of things. I don't think that's actually what he said, but I think that's how it got written down. It knocked the shit out of things, I think is what he said, because it was a very powerful poem. And I'm going to read you some of the poem Howell tonight, just to give you, for those of you especially who don't know, just to give you a taste because the poem also had a personal impact on me. Not back then, I wasn't at the reading or anything, but when I was um, a, a young man, a boy really, is when I first read the poem Howell, and that I loved the poem, and it, it really had a big impact, and it, you know, when I think about the poem Howell, it changed my life. And I later got to know Allen Ginsberg a little bit, and. Uh, I first hung out with Allen Ginsberg at the first B-in in New York City. And I don't know if, how many, pe how many people don't know what a B-in is? Let me just see, uh, this is like an age thing, right? The B-in was a hippie thing, and B-ins happened in San Francisco. That was, it was probably the first one, but also then in New York. And, and I, was, um, I was a kid, I was visiting in New York, 
and my brother was a hippie, and we went to the BN, my brother, my sister-in-law, his kids, and, um, and it was people who were dressed up and expressing themselves as hippies, and people who were taking a lot of drugs also, definitely a lot of psychedelics being ingested at the BN. And, uh, and I happened to run into Allen Ginsberg, who was at the BN, BN chanting, because Allen Ginsberg was a poet and a radical and a Buddhist, and, um, and, um, and he was involved with a lot of different spiritual traditions at different times. But he ended up being a Buddhist for the last 20 or 30 years of his life. And uh, so, so the first time I hung out with Alan was chanting in Central Park. Uh, and then later when I moved to New York, I used to run into him and see him in the Lower East Side. And, you know, he was just one of many kind of cool people who were in New York when I lived there. <clears throat> and, uh, and I liked um, uh, Allen Ginsberg a lot because he was a very real guy. He was very real about who he was and what he saw and what he understood, and he wasn't afraid to speak it. And so Howell was part of that. This is, this is my original copy of, of Howell, which I've had since about 19... Let me be accurate. Probably 1963 I've had this, and it was used when I got it. And it was originally, the, the date on here, the, the guy who first had it was 1958. He had it. And this is a, the 19, yeah, 1958 printing of Howell. Uh, and Howell's, a, if you don't know, Howell is a famous poem in America. It changed American poetry. It changed American culture because it really brought to the foreground what was considered an underground movement of people who ended up being having a lot of influence on culture and um, the aesthetics in America. And that included William Burroughs. How many, how many people don't know who William Burroughs is? Let me just see. Yeah, no, wave your hand high. You don't have to. William Burroughs wrote a very famous book called Naked Lunch. And if you want to read a book that, at least when I was young, was very disturbing. I remember reading Naked Lunch in high school and it was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe this book existed. And uh, so, so Ginsburg, uh, um, William Burroughs, who wrote Naked Lunch, Jack Kerouac, who wrote On the Road and who kind of epitomized the beatnik movement were all part of the same uh, cultural aesthetic that had a big impact on America and really were part of the birth of the hippies, who were then part of the birth of the punk movement, who were part of the birth of whatever the current movement is now. I, I don't even know. You, you have to tell me um, the tech movement. Maybe, I don't know if that's... Burning Man. Burning Man, yeah, Burning Man. I remember when Burning Man started here. It was such a not a big deal thing. But that's a while ago too now. And so, anyhow, so, uh, well, part of the reason I like this was, so Howell is dedicated to Carl Solomon, who was a friend of Ginsburg's who'd been put in a mental institution. 
and so, and so he he writes, and the poem is about life in America at a time when it was not okay to be outside of the box. If you were outside of the box, it was a problem, and you had a hard time because of it. And or if you were different, or if you were a little weird, or if you were interested in things that weren't just capitalism, basically, because America was a very capitalistic country after World War II, and the focus, at least culturally, the overview of American culture was about making money, and the middle class became very strong at that point in, in our history. And so he wrote this poem about himself and his friends and what happened for them. And I'll just read you a little so you get a flavor of the poem. He says, <clears throat> he begins with, I saw the best minds of my generation. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. So even if I just read those two lines, I want to just explain them to you a little bit. First of all, remember, I'm going to read some of this, and it's culturally um, ancient. You know, he wasn't, there was a lot that wasn't sophisticated about it. And then it, he was using certain language that you might understand at that time, but you might not understand now. So he said, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. Mostly we don't use the word Negro anymore in America. We use black or African American, but that was how people black people were referred to at that time. And then also he says, through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. How many people don't know what an angry fix is? An angry fix means a shot of heroin, right? And that's where you could cop some heroin. So dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities, contemplating jazz. And so what he's describing here is the underground scene of people who are interested in discovering more about reality than, oh, where can I find a good job and how can I get the right house and things like that were made, which were part of a, the, the general orientation of the culture. <clears throat> and of course, when I say culture, I'm talking about the mainstream white culture, the middle class culture of America at that time. 
He's, and he just continues, he said, who bared their brains to heaven under the L, L means um, elevated train, under the L, and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake-like tragedy among the scholars of war. And he just starts going on and on and and um, highlighting and um, putting out his view of the so-called traditional reality and what else was actually going on for people, especially young people of his generation at that time who were seeking to understand reality, who were seeking to wake up in some way. <clears throat> and it goes on and on with a lot of the suffering that they went through and then with you know some of the interesting things that happened to them I'm just going to read for another minute or so uh, who ate fire and paint hotels or drank turpentine in paradise alley death or purgatory their torsos night after night with dreams, with drugs, with waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless bars. Whole intellects disgorged in total recall for seven days and nights with brilliant eyes, meat for the synagogue cast on the pavement. He's, who studied Plotinus, Poe, St. John of the Cross, telepathy and Bob Kabbalah because the cosmos instinctively vibrated at their feet in Kansas, who loaned it through the streets of Idaho, who thought they were only mad because Baltimore gleamed in supernatural ecstasy. And he goes on and on, pages and pages about what they happened to them and the difficulties or the, or the ecstatic moments that would happen who faded out in sordid movies, were shifted in dreams, woke on, on a sudden Manhattan, who picked themselves out of basements, hung over with heartless Tokay, Tokay was a wine of that time, and horrors of Third Avenue iron dreams, and stumbled to unemployment offices, who walked all night with their shoes full of blood on the snowbank docks, waiting for a door to open in the East River to open waiting for a door in the East River to open to a room full of steam heat and opium. And so, and the, it just keeps going on and on and on. It's a long poem, I, I read it to myself today, which I haven't done in quite a while. And, and so he's talking about the dukkha of his time. Dukkha, if you don't know, is the suffering or the difficulty of his time for people of his age in his status of society at that point. <clears throat> and, the, and the poem, part of the, and so the poem is then dedicated to Carl Solomon and is uh, and describing the psychological and political and aesthetic dilemma that he was living in which we also are all dealing with or working with or struggling with whether we know it or not. 
And so part of the reason um, I also wanted to give this talk was um, I gave this talk for the first time about 25 years ago and I really enjoyed giving it and I got a lot of sirens. And um, and after I gave this talk, which was then put on Dharma Seed, which all the talks from retreats get put up on Dharma Seed Tape Library, um, I got a lot of feedback from Dharma Seed that this was one of the most requested talks uh, that had they'd ever posted, partly because Allen Ginsberg had died right before I gave the talk. And it's the reason why I originally gave the talk was he was a hero of mine in some ways. And I had a lot of gratitude for Alan and for what he did in his life. And I appreciated it. And even when I first gave the talk, I started the talk by talking about gratitude and being grateful. And personally, I've always been very grateful for uh, a number of people. I'll say a little more in a minute, but, but um, partly I was grateful to Alan because he dedicated this talk to um, Carl Solomon, who'd been in a mental institution. And I'd been in a mental institution when I was a kid. And so I appreciated him having that kind of respect for his friend. Because a lot of people, when I was in the mental institution, had no idea what to make of the fact that I was in a mental institution and didn't know what to make of me afterwards. And they didn't know how, at least for me, how liberating it was to be in a mental institution in Detroit when I was a kid. Which, of course, most people wouldn't think that. I, I wouldn't have thought that. but. It's what happened. Um, and so he also describes the, so first he describes the dukkha of his friends and then he describes the dukkha of the culture that he's found himself in at that time. And so part two begins, what sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imaginations? What sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch, solitude, filth, ugliness, ash cans and unobtainable dollars, children screaming in the stairways, boys sobbing in armies, men weeping, old men weeping in the parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch, Moloch the loveless, mental Moloch, Moloch, the heavy judger of men. And he goes on, he says, Moloch, whose mind is pure machinery. Moloch, whose blood is running money. Moloch, whose fingers are ten armies. Moloch, whose breast is a, is a cannibal dynamo. Moloch, whose ear is a smoking tomb. And he keeps going on and on. Moloch, whose love is endless oil and stone. Moloch, whose soul is electricity and banks. Moloch, whose poverty is the specter of genius. Moloch, whose fate is a, is a cloud of sexless hydrogen. 
he, he just keeps going on, right? They broke their backs living, lifting Moloch to heaven, pavements, trees, radios, tons, lifting the city to heaven which exists and is everywhere around us, visions, omens, hallucinations, miracles, ecstasies, gone down the American river. Dreams, adorations, illuminations, religions, the whole boatload of sensitive bullshit. Real holy laughter in the river. They saw it all. They bade farewell. They jumped off the roof. And then he, then he does a piece about compassion for his friend Carl Solomon. He says, Carl Solomon, I'm with you in Rockland. Rockland is the hospital. I'm with you in Rockland where you're madder than I am. I am with you in Rockland where you must feel very strange. I am with you in Rockland where you imitate the shade of my mother. Allen Ginsberg's mother had been put in a mental institution. And he just keeps going. I'm with you in Rockland where your condition has become serious and is reported on the radio. This is before you had internet, radio was a big thing. Even before there was TV, radio was a big thing. I'm with you in Rockland where the faculties of the skull no longer admit the worms of your senses. I'm with you in Rockland where 50 more shocks will never return your soul to its body again from its pilgrimage to a cross in the void. So, um, so Alan gave this poem, which I liked, and I used it as part of a Dharma talk a long time ago, and I'm reading it to you to try to give it a little flavor. And because the, the talk was about gratitude, and that's what the theme of the talk is tonight, it's about gratitude. And, and I had a lot of gratitude for Alan for his being real about this and being uh, real about talking about dukkha and compassion, and you'll hear he also talks about awakening. I'll read a little bit of the last part. <clears throat> but even when I talked about gratitude, when I think about gratitude, I feel very grateful for people, for humans, and especially for people who've inspired me, who've really um, had an impact on me that has supported my life and what I want to do and, and what I've learned over a life of practice and being alive and just being a human being. And some of the people are, are sports people or some of the people are, are people in the arts or some of the people like uh, Alan, who's a poet, or some people are people in the Dharma. Dharma teachers have been very inspiring to me. <clears throat> So it's fun to give the talk and talk about uh, being inspired by Gordie Howe, which not a lot of people here will know who Gordie Howe is, a couple people will know, or Bob Dylan, which more people will know, or John Coltrane, which more people will know, or Ginsburg. And gratitude is an interesting part of practice. It's, a, it's an interesting word. It's the quality of being thankful or of, of showing appreciation or uh, returning kindness. Those are all came out of the dictionary about what it meant 
what gratitude was. <clears throat> and part of what Dharma practice, I believe, will show us very quickly is not to take things for granted because each moment is unique. Each, each moment will never happen again. This is the only moment that will happen just like this. Whether you like it or not, this is it. And it's part of the paradox of practice in the Dharma, that this is it, and starting to appreciate the itness of what's here, which, to, I could put it simpler, meaning appreciate the life of what's here, because this is, this is your life right now. This is your aliveness right now. And you, one can have a lot of fantasies about what life might be or how much better life could be if I was watching the debate with Hillary and Donald Trump and, you know, but it doesn't, but that's all just, that's alive. Your, one's fantasy is alive right now too. It's just a live fantasy, a thought, an, an imagination, rather than being, starting to be aware of the aliveness that's here as it is, which is really all we've got. And the Dharma start, starts to hopefully teach us to not take this moment for granted. And it's the key to meditation practice, right? Because really, Nothing much is often happening in meditation. Have you noticed that? I mean, we're just sitting here and being aware of body, heart, and mind. That's all that's happening. And the whole Dharma is available through this simplicity of here and now, of this reality, of this living, breathing reality that is listening or speaking or dropping things or whatever is happening. And it's all, it's all, paradoxically workable or doable. <clears throat> and so one of the things that Dharma does that also we can begin to be grateful for is that Dharma points us at reality even when reality is difficult. Because as human beings, we generally, we just want to feel better. That's our first priority generally. And that's not a bad priority, but it's not the way things are. Sometimes we don't feel better or shit happens and it's difficult. And so how to learn to be with the shit happens part of life or the difficult parts of life because the difficult parts will happen for all of us and will happen differently, newly, at different times in our life all the way till the end, at least to some degree. And I don't mean that, oh, life is just bad or it's all suffering or anything like that. I don't mean that at all. But it's part of life is that there is dukkha or suffering. <clears throat> and so the Dharma and the Buddha, they said that the Buddha's teaching was a lion's roar. A lion's roar. And they're using the the culture of his time, right, of the, one of the strongest animals who, who around at that time, right? And the, it's the roar of fearless, fearlessness, which cannot be refuted. The roar of fearlessness. 
And so learning how to come into alignment with this lion's roar of the truth of the way things are. And that's not easy because the way things are is it doesn't mean it's the way we want it to be or the way we think it should be or the way we hope it should be. I mean, good luck for all of us. If things go the way we like, great. That's, I'm totally happy with that. But they also won't go the way we like. And so how do we learn to be present, awake, intelligent, kind, fearless, even when it's not going the way we want? And there are a lot of great teachers who are willing to talk about the truth that we can be grateful for, whether it's the Buddha or Jesus or Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela or whoever, whoever you can, comes to mind for you. <clears throat> and another part that I think is important about the Buddha's lion's roar that we can be grateful for is he pointed to freedom. He said there is freedom and that's one of the possibilities of being a human being, right? The four noble truths are that there's suffering, there's causes to suffering, and then there's an end to suffering. And that's possible for us. And then there's a path, and the fourth truth being the path that leads to the end of suffering. <clears throat> and, uh, and the end of suffering, often in Buddhism they can be very discreet about the end of suffering. And really one of the simplest ways that's talked about is the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. Very simple understanding of what freedom is really like. But we, we hear those as concepts, but it, he's pointing, the Buddha's pointing at an experiential reality where we're free of the magnetism of greed or the aversion of dukkha or the, or the confusion of delusion. We're actually, it's not here. And when those aren't here, what is here? That's what we want to look at experientially. And often it's talked about in very positive terms. And so I love the end of the poem Howell because Allen Ginsberg, when he goes through his compassion for his friend. I'm with you in Rockland. I'm with you in Rockland where we wake up electrified out of the coma of our own soul's airplanes roaring over the roof. They've come to drop angelic bombs. The hospital illuminates itself. Imaginary walls collapse. Skinny legions run outside. Oh, starry spangled shock of mercy. The eternal war is here. Oh, victory, forget your underwear, we're free. I'm with you in Rockland, in my dreams you walk dripping from a sea journey on the highway across America in tears to the door of my cottage in the western night. This is, and then it's San Francisco, 1955-56. And then he goes on, the footnote to Howell is holy, 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 H-O-L-Y, holy, 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 holy. The world is holy. The soul is holy. The skin is holy. The nose is holy. The, uh, 
the tongue and cock and hand and asshole holy. Everything is holy. Everybody's holy. Everywhere is holy. Every day is in eternity. Every man's an angel. The bum as holy as the seraphim. The madman is holy as you, my soul, as holy. And then this is a little ancient, but you'll hear it. The typewriter, which nobody uses anymore. The typewriter is holy. The poem is holy. The voice is holy. The hearers are holy. The ecstasy is holy. And then he names a bunch of his friends. Holy Peter, Holy Alan, Holy Carl Solomon, Holy Luchin, Holy Kerouac, Holy Hunky, Holy Burroughs, Holy Cassidy. Holy the unknown buggered and suffering bakers, holy the hideous, hideous human angels. And then he just keeps going on, holy, 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 holy. He sees reality now without the dukkha, or through the dukkha, or beyond the dukkha. I'm looking for ways to say it. He sees the magic of reality, which is always here which is always possible to see. I mean, he would come in, he would say, you know, Kitty Holy, Eugene Holy, Kathy Holy, you know, Deborah Holy, Larry Holy. He would say, oh, you, you Holy, you know, Geary Street Holy. It's all Holy, San Francisco Holy. Because at a certain point, one can see with that kind of vision of the freedom of the magic of reality that's appeared in this way, shape, or form that we call ourselves. Holy forgiveness, mercy, charity, faith, holy, ours, bodies, suffering, magnanimity. Holy, the supernatural, extra brilliant, intelligent kindness of the soul. So the gratitude that he knows something about is something that's part of Dharma practice when we get here. And it's actually, it's not always when we get here, because often we, we don't feel gratitude. It's when we get here and something lets go. When that usual identification, the usual attachment that it's got to be this way or that way or some way or the right way or the Republican way or the Democratic way or the capitalist way or the communist way or the whatever it is these days. But if we really get here and we start to experience the living moment. Let me ask you, are you grateful to be here? Are you you grateful to be alive? Right? And usually, even when we don't feel that, conceptually, we think it. We think, oh yeah, I'd rather be alive than dead. But often we don't actually feel the gratitude, the appreciation for the fact that actually we won't be here at some time. And that's just part of the truth of reality. And the appreciation for the liveness that's sitting here. Even if you don't like the talk today, you're still here and alive. And of course, I could just go on a little about gratitude for body or heart or mind. 
because they're all magical. It's all it's magical that we breathe and that we're alive and we grow up and we're born and we keep going until at some point we stop going. And it's magical that we have a heart that we can feel things and we care about things and we love things or that even that we're hurt by things or that we're tender. It's, it's amazing we have this kind of aliveness that we call heart or the mind that we can think or we can imagine or we can fantasize or we can create. Total magic that we take for granted at some time. And when we don't take it for granted, we often can easily feel grateful for any part of this aliveness. The Buddha said, a grateful person is as rare in the world as a saint. A grateful person is as rare in the world as a saint. And uh, sometimes I think he would encourage the understanding of what's called the three characteristics in Buddhism to help us, uh, help our gratitude open up. And the three characteristics, there's a Nietzsche, Dukkha, Nata, is impermanence, suffering, and the not-self component of reality. And when we see that everything is changing all the time, right? Everybody get that? Everything is changing? It's, it's nothing is the same twice, even though sometimes we think it's the same. Everything is brand new and, and everything will not stay. Everything will keep changing we can start to be grateful for each moment of life because it's magical. Or dukkha, that there's suffering. Anybody not have suffering? I always like to meet the people who don't have any suffering because <laughs> it's just part of the human experience. <clears throat> and yet it's not the totality of the human experience. There's also the moments that we all know of not suffering and the beauty of not suffering and the, the creativity of not suffering and the magic or the fun of not suffering. And then also the not-self experience of the seeing that we're not in control of reality, that reality is doing itself and we are just one other, we are another expression of reality which is, it's often a harder part of Buddhism for people to understand, the not-self part. <clears throat> um, but it leads to something that is talked about in the Dharm Diamond Sutra. This is again from the Buddha. He said, thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Thus shall ye, all, thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a, a bubble in a stream, 
a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So it's the Buddha talking about reality that is just here and changing and different. And we have very little, if any, control over. So I'll stop there. I always like to hear your responses to what's said. Liking, not liking, questions, comments. Please, and if you could turn it around and, yeah, thank you. Yeah, great. Um, my name's Roberta, and thank you very much for breaking down the poem and giving a good explanation. Uh, coincidentally, on my way here this evening, I uh, saw a young person shooting up and very close to me, meaning in close vicinity. And this, uh, <coughs> seeing uh, people, what, uh, what I'm going to identify as people with addictions, um, has been something that I see quite a bit. And it affects me in such a way that I don't know how to deal with, with it because, um, well, I feel like I could, I have a friend that goes to AA and told me, oh, I love when I see those people because I'm very grateful for that because it reminds him of you know where he's been and helps to motivate him to stay sober. Um, so I appreciate also your mentioning of gratefulness in conjunction with this. And I actually thought, well, I should be grateful, grateful that well, I'm well, seeing this. Well, well, just watch out for any, I should be mm -hmm. grateful. That's not what is being suggested, Yeah. right? And that's a way we often think, very normal. And that's, that's really what my question is, is the difference between thought and heart. Uh -huh. And where does gratefulness really come from? Because I can that's, logically say, I should be grateful. Right, well, yeah. What, where does, and you said, you know, a grateful person is more unique than a saint. Right. Because so where does it, it really come from? That's a great question. Well, well, stay here. We might talk a little. Come on. Um, no, it's a great question. Where does gratefulness come from? And maybe anybody could answer that because maybe there isn't an answer exactly. Meaning, I mean, it'd be easy to say, or it comes from the heart. But uh, maybe that's not always where it comes from. Maybe sometimes it comes from the heart maybe sometimes from the mind, maybe sometimes from the body. It just comes. It's not even logical, but one is grateful. Like I've said this before here, after I had my bad accident and I sat the first time. This, it isn't quite exact, but I, and I didn't know how to sit because I'd lost everything. And, and I got up and it was good, but I couldn't tell you why it was good. I just knew it was good, and that's all. And I didn't even—I didn't even know that I didn't know why it was good, right? And so there can be that kind of direct knowing, like direct gratitude, and um, yeah. And so I would, you know, I mean, like seeing somebody shooting up is really disturbing, 
and sad that people are suffering. And I don't feel grateful for people suffering at all. I'm grateful that I'm not shooting up right now. That's true. But I'm, I'm not at all grateful to see anybody shooting up. So, it, it, you know, look carefully at what's your actual experience of gratitude. When does it come? Are you doing it or does it just happen? Or, or, or both? Let's not limit to, might not be one or the other. I appreciate that and I do think that there's a sense of natural gratefulness that I get sometimes. Right. And sometimes I logically want to think my way to gratefulness. Uh -huh. And I also think of what you've told me before, which is when I'm seated and maybe I want to move because I'm um, getting uncomfortable, it's just hard to sit for a long time. You've mentioned, what if you just do nothing? And those words have helped me multiple times at different, in different places. And I feel that sometimes maybe that's what I'm supposed to do is just do nothing, and there should. Right. But um, just be in the moment, see, see what happens next. And in the case with addictions, it's, or even just walking to Powell Street when I'm taking public transportation lab late at night. And then it's like, it, the opposite is apathy. Like, we'll look at all these, this suffering, and I don't want to be apathetic, but I also can't do anything about it. Right, but you, so there's a few different pieces to what you're saying. One is, uh, do you, do you have to do something about it to feel something about it? Or if you feel something about it, do you then have to do something about it? Becomes part of just your own investigation. Because sometimes the two go together. I feel something, I want to do something. Sometimes, no, I feel something. It's not the right time for me to do something. And so keep looking and just watch out for shooting on yourself, <laughs> right? Because it's really, it's not, and we all do it, but it's not so helpful. And it, it becomes like I'm supposed to, or you should, or rather than what's true, not what should I do. What's true? Oh, I feel something, I want to do something, that's one thing. Or I feel something, it's not the right time for me to do something, that's another thing. Or I feel something, I don't want to do something. That may be true too. But because that's where the Dharma comes from, from what's real. And then you have some free will, some choice about your response to reality which is, I believe, we all want to respond to reality as skillfully as possible. If, if we're honest and we're true, we have the most capacity to respond skillfully. And skillfully means doing or not doing, both. Thank you. Okay, sure, thank you. Please. Hi, I'm Kevin. Uh, thanks for... Um, it's been a, it was a while since I read that, that poem, and it, uh, I appreciate your interpretation. I realize that I've changed how I see things from, from when I read it some years ago. And um, 
for me, Allen Ginsberg, what comes across, especially at the end, with all holy everything, right. is the acceptance that, like, that it's all grace. Okay. That there is, you know, there are the, there are the, there's the soothing, tranquilizing grace, and there's also the fierce grace, okay. and being open to all of it, the wholeness of all of it, is somehow where he seems to arrive at the end after going through all of the, you know, the horrendous things. But it's all holy, and even the stuff that's really brutal. Right. There, there's a fierce grace in it that change that that. You know, it's really, if you, if we, I think most of it, for me anyway, the stuff that changes me is the stuff that's really been shitty. You know, the stuff that's, the, the stuff that, that's where I've grown through that's really changed me uh -huh. has been the stuff that's really been difficult and yeah. shitty. If, if you, you know, yeah. and the nice, the nice, tranquil, soothing grace has been wonderful as well. Right. The other stuff that you don't want, it's, you know, like kind of the, the medicine or the broccoli that you had to eat when you were, you know, when you were, and yeah. so forth. So, I, but that really what comes through in the, uh, so I appreciate you. You kind of uh, put that the holy part at the end. So, great, so. great. Thank you, and I appreciate your pointing at the fierce grace, because I mean we can Buddhize it a little bit and call, talk about fierce compassion, because we often think about compassion as being nice, and that's only a limited understanding of compassion. Sometimes compassion is being fierce, and that that's the compassionate response. And so, beautiful. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Hi, I'm Robin. Um, I was um, researching earlier this week, I don't know how many people remember um, two stores, one was service merchandise. A little louder, please, Robin. Thank I you. I was researching earlier this week um, about two stores um, from my earlier years that I used to go to a lot. Um, one was called Service Merchandise, and the other one was called Montgomery Ward. <laughs> what, what was the first one? Service Merchandise. I don't think it was ever really big in the cities. It was one of those department stores that was in the malls in the interior of the country. Um, and I was just kind of marveling at the passage of time. And I remember, um, like, I'm sure at some point you discovered Allen Ginsberg. I had to discover John Coltrane before I had to discover Wynton Marsalis. I had to meet the guy before I knew who he was. And um, so that was a demonstration of profound ignorance on my part to be standing in front of a man who they're presenting a watch in his honor and I don't know who he is. Um, but, um, you know, it really made me grateful today um, to think about how much things are the same and yet things have changed. You know, the typewriter is the word processor and the jet, the turboprop is now the SpaceX orbital vehicle. Um, but it's all really the same. The bubbles in the stream remain the same. And, um, and I was thinking about my own childhood and my own life. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I was kind of relating it. I always have this question in my mind. How did humans survive to get to pretend to be civilized and dress up and think that they're so different from all the other creatures on the planet? How did we get beyond the tiger and the lion and the bear 
to the city. And then I think about my own life. Um, and one thing that I'm always forced to kind of recognize is my own privilege to kind of walk around and wave at the cops and make jokes with the cops, especially in a time like now. Um, and then kind of juxtapose that against, like I remember my first memory was drinking from a bottle as an infant. And my second memory was watching my own mother shoot up heroin. Um, and this woman was rich. I mean, she was educated. Um, she had traveled the world. Um, but this was a reality that people actually dealt with. And um, one of the reasons um, I was recently redoing my will and stuff, and um, I was trying to figure out what AIDS organization to identify. My mother died with AIDS. And, um, and I was really, um, you know, when you were talking, you just, I don't know it, I don't, I won't say I have a conclusion or a definitive comment, um, but it, I, it feels like it encapsulated something for me. Um, and it really brought everything full circle. I'm gonna have to read the poem and probably look up some contextual references to make sure I comprehend everything. But I did wanna say I really wanna thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I feel like history is so important. And oftentimes we don't appreciate it and we end up repeating the mistakes of Buddha or of Jesus or of Muhammad when all of that, I mean, it's all there in front of us and all we have to do is just take this wisdom of Allen Ginsberg and Woody Allen and apply it to our lives. So I appreciate it. Good. Thank you. And, uh, you know, we're all learning how to be real together. We're all learning how to get here together. And it's uh, interesting, like you're saying, how things change, right? From crop to jet to whatever SpaceX is now. And, but it's the same deal of human beings uh, who are so creative that we could even, people figured out how to fly planes, right? Do you all remember before there were planes? Right. Now, nobody remembers that, but if we were, we had each have another hundred years, we would all remember the time when, oh, nobody flew, you know, the trains were really fastest way to get around. And yet human beings keep being amazingly creative in that way and, and in many different ways. And we, you know, if we all stick around a hundred years, it'd be wild to see how the world is a hundred years from now really even 10, 15 years from now, it keeps getting quicker. And we'll see what happens if it's here or it's not here, the world. Last one. Just pull it down, it'll come to you, yeah, great. My name is Rocio, and thank you so much. Um, I feel that spirituality comes from the divine. It comes from the goddess, um, and it's very connected to humility. So uh, humility, humility. Uh -huh, great. so I'm just praying to be more humble and um, to become spiritually centered and grounded. And that is a very good spiritual principle for, for me to connect with. Um, and yeah, it's very um, difficult for me to um, 
hear about the addictions. I myself have not had that experience. Mm -hmm. However, I've, I've been doing some research um, and saying that the Al-Anon or the person um, who doesn't do that and is associated with the addict suffers more, you know, more blood pressure. Someone has to take up the shift. Um, someone has to do the work for them. Um, they actually suffer more. And um, it, it's not, it, I thought this is not a competition, of course, but um, it just seems to me that there's a lot of suffering and it's hard for me to emotionally detach from this and that's what I need to do. Um, for instance, speaking of poets, I mean, um, I was just discriminated by the poet Jack Hirschman, who lives in North Beach. He's refusing by, by to... By who? Jack Hirschman. Uh -huh. Yeah, he was sexually harassing one of the female poets, pinching her behind, uh -huh. you know, and, and just um, trying to hit on me. I am not being respected. There is a woman uh, who's also a poet. The, the men are either hitting on me or and not respecting my work as a poet. They're refusing to publish me or to allow me to read. And, and so there's kind of like, I think, a romance or a glamorization of the beats and then and now, or what's, what's really going on in North Beach. And it's very difficult for me to stay grounded and centered in the reality of what's going on in this community right now, um, especially with the men and myself as a woman who's being discriminated. And so I just feel like it's very, um, it's very important for me to stay, um, like you said, intelligent and conscious and aware and kind and just to say, okay, I am grateful that I am not in that space and that, um, you know, that I'm not suffering like that. But at the same time, I need not to be, um, I just need to detach, just need to detach and stay grounded and centered and, and just well, keep so going you may you may voice. need to be fierce at times if somebody's really acting inappropriately with you. That that's a fierce kind of uh, uh, of compassion, not to put up with shit like that. No, no, I did, and he, oh. I told him that okay. he couldn't do that, and he said I was attacking him. Well, that may be, that but I'm just saying, as part of your practice, that is that's an important part, you know. No, 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 I understand okay. that, but again, they twist it all around and make themselves look like the victim, and that's a reality of life, you know. This often happens, so then there's tools. Sure, sure. And so whatever yes, you're yeah. saying, it's like, okay, here's a tool for that situation to yeah. become more assertive. Yeah. And so there are tools for discrimination, which yeah. is to be assertive and stand up for yourself, yeah. which I have been doing. So this person immediately turned it around and said I was attacking so, him. So and I am not attacking him, I'm standing up for my humanity. Right. But it's a very common what you're describing also, which is, um, if somebody's attacking and somebody says something, they say, no, 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 I'm not attacking. Or if somebody's dominant and somebody else is not accepting the dominance, then they say, oh, no, I'm not doing that. Da, 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 da. And that's very, so all I'm say, really saying is, yeah, part of awareness is to stay very <coughs> present to what's happening in the moment so that we can respond with intelligence, creativity, compassion, and fierceness when that's also part of what's appropriate. That's, um, that's all I'm pointing out. Yeah, no, no, out. I hear what you're saying, and, and you're right. I mean, I just need to keep um, detaching from this, and I am saying I'm standing up on my humanity. And, and you're right, it just continues to um, nurture my creativity and keep going in spite of it. Thank yes. you so much. Sure, thank you. <clears throat> I'm going to end with a little poem as we sit for a moment. 
a little gratitude poem from E.E. E. Cummings. Find the whole poem. He says, I thank you, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I, who have died, am alive again today, and this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and wings and of the gay great happening illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing any, lifted from the no of all nothing, human merely being, doubt, unimaginable you. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing, any, lifted from the know of all nothing, human merely being, doubt, unimaginable you. Now the ears of my ears awake. Now the eyes of my eyes are opened. Appreciating this moment, our time together, our opportunity to reflect on the Dharma, on life, on reality. Appreciating the goodness of having this time together. May the benefit of our time together be for good for ourselves for the benefit of one another and for the benefit of all people, all beings. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from dukkha, free from confusion, free from misunderstanding. The holiness of each moment May all beings awaken. May we awake together. May all beings be free.
I'm glad I came. Good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.